iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We knew we had to swing for the fences and, and kind of get a lot of capital. So we were trying to raise $10 million Series A. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. How are you all doing? I am recovering from COVID. That's right. We finally got hit. Well, the whole family did. Um, a five-year-old brought it home from school, then he passed it to his brother, passed it to me, and finally my wife. So we all got it, but we're all coming out of the back end of it now. It was mostly fine. You know, we did have some symptoms. Um, I was completely wiped out for like a day. And then since then, it's been kind of like a weird cold. Just some congestion, the occasional dull headache, which is weird because I just don't get headaches. But um, otherwise, I'm fine, feeling good. And most importantly, now we all have immunity. So I am pumped because we've been living pretty cautiously because we were trying to avoid especially our three-year-old who's not vaccinated getting it and the yeah, you know the kind of the quarantine forced isolation that that would entail but now we've done that so we can start getting out there doing some more traveling i can start doing a lot more in-person stuff interviews podcasts i'm feeling good so hopefully you know we are getting toward the end of this pandemic, at least as it has been over this past two years, and we can start kind of moving into a different phase. It's certainly what it feels like. Um, but anyhow, we're not talking about COVID this week. We have a great show for you, though. We are talking about rockets, specifically 3D printed rockets. That's right. Our guest is Tim Ellis. He is the founder of a company called Relativity Space. It's a startup that's raised over a billion dollars. And what they've been doing over the past five years or so is building the world's largest 3D printer, um, which they're then using to build the world's very first fully 3D printed rocket, which is the largest 3D printed anything on planet Earth. And you're kind of wondering, I can imagine, who cares? Well, 3D printing as opposed to, you know, typical manufacturing where you have to kind of have various bits and pieces, you make them, you fasten them together, it's uh, very expensive, takes a long time. Doing it with 3D printing, fraction of the cost, and can be done in a fraction of the time. And when you're talking about the space industry, that's a very, very big deal because as we have covered on this pod many times, space industry is booming like literally never before. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that when it gets really cheap to send stuff into space, you can do back down here on Earth. They're quite a big deal from, you know, real-time Earth imaging to monitoring climate change, predicting the weather, monitoring deforestation. I mean, the kind of list goes on. There's other stuff you can do in space, uh, like zero-G manufacturing of really interesting and difficult to make stuff here on Earth. There's, of course, satellite-based internet, which is, you know, going to be a huge force, especially for the three billion or so people who are not on the web 
believe it or not, as of today. So anyway, there's a lot going on here. And um, Tim started out with this crazy idea in his 20s. And it all is coming to a head over this next couple months when they do their first launch of their first mega giant rocket fully 3D printed. So it'll be really interesting to see. So we want to have him in before that kind of big moment of truth. And he also has a really amazing founder story. And let's just say, I don't want to spoil it, but that cold emails from random young folks to really famous people, every once in a while, they actually work. Um, You're really going to get a kick out of this one. Trust me, um, we cover it all, including Tim's fixation with Mars and how he reckons his company is going to help us set up a base there and why that's a good idea. Um, Or at least according to him, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. But we cover all of that and much more in my conversation with Tim Ellis, the founder and CEO of Relativity Space. Enjoy. So I came across you guys because I've written a lot about space over the last couple of years um, because it's, you know, there's this big boom in space, kind of unprecedented boom of people and investing in space and the space tourism thing and all that stuff. But I was really interested because you guys are 3D printing rockets and I've written about 3D printing over the years on and off, but it was always like little kind of trinkets. I remember going to, when I lived in London, there was like a 3D printing kind of conference and it was like, we can 3D print a likeness of you. And it's like, you know, but it's a little figurine. This is all like kind of small, intricate stuff. And so I was like, but you're printing like a, how big is the rocket? Uh, So our first rocket's 110 feet tall and seven and a half foot diameter. So in meters, about 30 meters tall, three meters wide, give or take, a little under. Um, And that whole thing is 3D printed out of metal. So very, very large, uh, relatively builds the largest metal 3D printers in the world. And then we also have a new rocket that's uh, what we'll talk about, I'm sure, but it's fully reusable. And that one is 220 feet tall, 20 foot diameter. So, you know, quite quite a bit bigger, about 20 times bigger payload, uh, 20,000 kilograms. So that's all 3D printed on the same printers. Wow. Okay, so I have questions. (laughs) One, what problem are you solving by doing it this way? And two, how did you get here? What were you doing before? Yeah, yeah, of course. I I think I'll kind of answer both of those together because it's related. So so I started my career uh, working at Blue Origin. So that's Jeff Bezos' private space company up in Seattle. I was a propulsion engineer. So the whole propulsion team was only about 20 people when I first joined. So it was really early. Uh, the whole company was 150 and I designed rocket engines. So I'd go from a blank sheet of paper to the first working version of a product and do all the steps in between. So so by background, I'm, I guess, what you would call a full stack rocket engineer. And in that process, I ended up doing the first ever metal 3D printing at Blue Origin. And then, you know, I really saw just how much cheaper and faster it was to 3D print these really, really complicated parts that normally would have taken nine months and gone to a dozen or so different suppliers and all these different uh, really labor intensive steps. And, and I printed these parts in single pieces. But then really what the inspiration was for Relativity, which I founded about six years ago now, was I started the metal 3D printing division at Blue Origin. So I really saw, well, man, if this works for a single part, 
you know, I, I should start a division here and let's go buy a bunch of 3D printers. I mean, Jeff, uh, who I was lucky to, to work with on it, you know, said, look, I've got all this capital I'm willing to invest in the future. So he went and bought a bunch of off-the-shelf metal 3D printers and started doing bits and parts of, of a rocket. But the problem was, is I was looking at a giant factory full of fixed tooling, trying to build these rockets that had hundreds of thousands of individual parts. And we were happy that we were printing one part. So it was very slow and, and kind of cumbersome way to have this technology be adopted. And, and so I took a step back and realized, you know, really two core things that led me to found relativity. The, the first was, you know, I, I went to school in LA at USC. So a ton of my friends had worked over at SpaceX and, you know, back in uh, 20, 2015, when I founded Relativity, SpaceX was landing rockets and docking with the International Space Station and doing all this, like, really inspiring stuff. Like, honestly, you know, being a space nerd and loving rockets, I think even outside of that, I think SpaceX has done some of the most inspiring things in our lifetime around mechanical engineering and just what kind of crazy, crazy mission you can go after and somehow find success. But despite that, you know, at the time when I founded Relativity, nearly 13 years old and not a single other company had been founded that wanted to go to Mars and make humanity multiplanetary. And, and I personally am very inspired by that mission and, and I can go into why, but I think there has to be a company that's going to build an industrial base on Mars. And I think 3D printing is inevitably required if we're going to ever get off planet and live on the moon or on Mars or in space. And so, you know, I really just worked backwards and said, well, somebody's going to start this company that is going to create intelligent 3D printing technology. We need to live in space. And, you know, I thought from my experience at Blue Origin, if I got started from scratch and really created an entirely new tech stack, for aerospace built around 3D printing, that we could be that company. It's our core mission that we want to build an industrial base on Mars is our long-term stated goal. Relativity's long-term stated goal is to build an industrial base on Mars. That's right. Yeah. Got you. And so the second piece is, you know, I really realized with 3D printing, it's just software-driven manufacturing and automation. So I saw the ability to reduce part count of a whole product, instead of just bits and parts, if we could print an entire rocket that we'd have a hundred times fewer parts, I believe in what relativity is driving towards is we'll be able to build a rocket from raw material to complete in under 60 days. And then 60 days later, we can do a better version. And 60 days later than that, we can do an even better version because there's fewer constraints with 3D printing. You can iterate much faster. And so I think the, the core problem we're solving isn't just launching satellites to orbit, although that, that's really what we're focused on uh, today. And, and that's how we make money as a business. But uh, it's really creating this new tech stack for aerospace and transitioning from manual labor, fixed tooling based, high part count, high complexity manufacturing that's dominated aerospace over the last 60 years to software-driven automation and 3D printing and, and data-driven manufacturing, which is what I'm very convinced is the future. It strikes me that there's a there's some similarities here, at least on a high level, between kind of electric cars and the internal combustion engine. Just in terms of, I mean, one of the things that electric cars promise is that they're just going to break down a lot less because there's an order of magnitude fewer moving parts. It's just a simpler machine. 
because also in space, obviously, we all have seen gone on. You, you can go on YouTube and see like the spectacular explosions, things going wrong all the time, etc. But, you know, I presume there is an advantage here about reducing just the sheer number of parts, like the less bolts and things and little bits and pieces that can go wrong, for lack of a better word. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, no, I mean, I, I do think, you know, when you look at automotive, it's been very clear for a few decades now that electric was the future. We've known it from a climate perspective, from a sustainability perspective. There's other advantages to electric vehicles. But for many decades, people were trying to take an existing factory, an existing development and design paradigm and supply chain paradigm to building electric cars, whether it was Ford or Nissan with or early electric vehicles, we're trying to shove batteries and electric motors into these existing products. And no one really built a very compelling product at all. Um, and, and people have been trying for some time. It wasn't until a company came along that realized really the shift from gas internal combustion-based you know, economy to electric meant the design of the car could be different. The design of the factory was different. In fact, the whole business model can be different. You can view batteries and electric motors as this core tech to build multiple products on top of. And then, yeah, the, the dirty secret with electric cars, as you mentioned, is having uh, fewer parts also means you can automate much easier. Because having fewer parts, you know, of course, lends to robotic automation and kind of more breakthroughs there. And so I really think that compounding advantage and, and you know, when Tesla came along and really started to push that model forward. And, and now there's a bunch of electric vehicle companies uh, like Rivian and, and others that are following suit. You know, I think the same thing will happen in aerospace, really the shift to 3D printing, which, again, in my view, is really just software driven, no fixed tooling, combine a bunch of parts together and, and build very complex things with a lot of manufacturing simplicity and, and push that uh, kind of rate of learning and improvement into data that you can collect on the process and improve the product. That is a paradigm shift that is inevitable uh, whether relativity does it or not, I think we're very far along in, in making that happen. But whether we achieve it or not, it's the right goal to go after because it must happen. Software and automation is permeating almost every other industry, but it really hasn't in aerospace yet. And, and that's for good reason. I mean, versus a car, an airplane or a rocket has many orders of magnitude higher parts. And if you look at one in real life, you'll see just how complicated it is. Um, and then even worse, you only build, you know, maybe a dozen or a few hundred a month ever. Uh, but that still adds up to be a trillion dollar industry globally when you look at all of aerospace manufacturing globally. So it's a big opportunity. So how does it work? Because the theory sounds all totally logical and makes sense and feels like, you know, oh, this is very clearly a step change in how things are done. But printing a hundred foot rocket out of, I presume, molten metal doesn't sound easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And before I get to that, I guess just to tone set, so, so certainly relatively six years old, we've got about 650 employees uh, around in the US and we've raised a little under $1.4 billion. So, so certainly it's been a journey to get to that point. I'm excited to tell that story. Yeah, we absolutely, I, I want to kind of get 
to that whole journey, but if we could get to how it works and then maybe we can go backwards to just like, you know, cause obviously that's not, will not have been a straight line to get where you are. Yeah, of course, of course. So, um, so yeah, we really at its heart, metal 3d printing is very similar to welding. Uh, so, so you really have a metal wire that you feed in and then melt it, For us, we have a combination of lasers and then also uh, electric arc discharge, which is, really just a welding power supply essentially and then all of that that printing head is attached to a robot arm and so wherever the robot moves and traces a path out uh, essentially is feeding in aluminum solid aluminum wire it melts and then solidifies right there at the the source and so what you end up with is very similar grain structure and and metallurgy and material properties to to welded aluminum alloys but then what we found in the process is we had to invent our own aluminum alloys and really start to collect a lot of real-time data. Um, we've written software for simulation uh, to simulate the print before printing. And then we've correlated all of that with post-process data through tens of thousands of material samples and looking under a microscope and, and really making sure the quality is, is good enough to 3D print a working rocket. And so really, I, I would say creating the 3d printer has been just as hard as making a rocket work which you know i think that gets to to part of the founding story when you know we said we're going to 3d print a rocket no one has ever done this before at this scale almost everyone in rockets is doing metal 3d printing of some type usually for engine components and parts of the engine Um, and these are very small off-the-shelf metal 3d printers but to do it for the entire primary structure, um, it's quite a bit larger. And we definitely had to invent uh, a lot of the printing tech just to make that work. But, you know, we've now built dozens of uh, pressure vessels and tank structures and even done full-scale testing for the first rocket that we're going to fly to orbit in a few months from now. So it's really, really exciting to see, you know, the tech does work. And we have gotten to the point where uh, it's not a question of if, but when. And is the challenge around size, kind of simply put, or is that like, you know, because I imagine, you know, a rocket has to withstand, you know, extreme pressures, temperatures, all these physical forces on it. I don't know if it's just simply, we just had to build a big old robot to build something this big, or was it, were there a whole host of other things that you also had to figure out? Yeah, I, I, you know, I wish it was that easy. I, I thought it was <laughs> at first, maybe. I mean, actually, honestly, no one had ever built up aluminum kind of structures at that scale before. So I did think there was a, when I founded it, I thought there was a 50-50 chance within three months, we would just have a pile of metal that looked like, you know, horrible <laughs> and, and obviously not going right. to work. And that, you know, I would have left left a good job and and failed pretty fast. But um, as it turns out, you know, the, the first thing we printed, you know, worked well enough that it showed promise. But I mean, it's it's been a solid, uh, really a solid five-year development process to get the printer that would even work at all. Um, so really what, what's been hard is controlling the process to, to have routine quality. I mean, when you look at how big our rocket is, the, the 110 foot tall structure, it's something like a hundred miles of print 
area or, or, or wire fed in. So essentially, wow. you know, the, the distance it is printing is like 100 miles. And I don't know what that is in kilometers. I'm going to speak in English units. And No, yeah, yeah. No, well, our audience is um, versed in miles and kilometers, so we're all good. Fantastic. Okay, so 100 miles. And um, yeah, I mean, you essentially have to have very, very few flaws in the 100 miles to make sure that the thing's going to work because it's a big pressure vessel. So any one flaw or weakness that's too big will unzip, you know, potentially the entire rocket. And so the the level of quality control is extremely high. And that's really come from a lot of the simulation techniques, uh, the real-time data collection, tagging, storage, learning from data. We've printed tens of thousands of print hours across many printers. And since we build our own printers in-house, and we don't sell them to anybody, we're on generation four of our own 3D printing technology. So we've also been able to print, fail, print, fail, iterate, you know, add active cooling, um, you know, different laser sensors, camera sensors, collecting even audio data. We, we, we've learned that listening to the sound of it printing tells us something about the quality. And then this all needs to mesh together and, you know, really be correlated to then have that level of quality to work and the printing. So that's been a big part of the, the kind of magic to make it all function properly. And how big is this printing robot? Yeah, so the the latest third generation printers, which is what we're building on uh, entirely now, is 32 feet tall, and we can print about 20 foot diameter. Um, so 20 feet by 32 feet. And then we have five flight printers currently operating. And so across those five, they build the rocket in different sections. And we have a a separate horizontal joining printer welder, essentially, um, that joins them together. And that makes the whole thing. Is this just the body you're building? Or you build it? Are you also printing all of like the engine and the engine parts and everything else as well? Yep. So we do all that as well. So, so yeah, those printers are for the main very large structures, which is liquid oxygen and liquid methane uh, tanks and the payload fairing and fuselage and interstage. And there's a bunch of stiffening structures on the inside of the, the tank. So they're not just tubes. There's, there's quite a bit more going on um, that's normally very complicated to build. And then all the engines are printed as well. So it's really for the very first rocket, it's about 85% 3D printed. And then our target is to get to 95%. And I think I think we'll actually exceed 95% on the next versions of our rockets. Because really, e- each version we do, will just merge more parts together into these 3D printed structures, which of course gets rid of joints and interfaces. It gets rid of multiple suppliers and having to coordinate parts being made, even, even internally, uh, to our company because we're quite vertically integrated, just getting rid of parts and complexity will result in much faster iteration speeds. So would this look differently? You know, if I walked up close to it, would I see like a, effectively a complete lack of, you know, bolts, fasteners, whatever that you would see in a, I don't know, if you walked up to Starship or one of these other big rockets or planes? Yes, yeah, so you can definitely tell it's 3D printed. I'll, I'll tell you that. So there are some kind of ridges and surface roughness. And yeah, it very much looks 3D printed today. And so that adds a little bit, about 5 to 10% to the dry mass, not of the whole rocket with fuel, but just the empty mass. 
but we actually make up for that increased weight because we're able to more finely optimize the geometry. So adding different stiffening structures and changing the wall thickness up the height of the rocket, which is traditionally quite difficult to do. And so not, not everyone does that, ends up really helping us. But so for the first rocket, there's for sure parts of the um, in the engines, the turbo pumps, valves that look wildly different from a non 3D printed product, much much more organic looking, and and that's not because it looks cool, although it does. It's it's really because you start to let part count consolidation and and mashing many many sub assemblies together into single parts really drive the design, and so the design for 3D printing. And the 3D printers themselves are actually really go hand in hand, which is also why I had to start from scratch and and building the company, because you can't just press print on a traditional design and have it really save you any time or cost. In fact, it'll almost certainly be more expensive and slower to build a traditional design that way. Uh, 3D printing only makes sense when you really think of the entire development approach for that process. And it's going to diverge a lot over time. So as far as bolts and joints, we we certainly do have still some interfaces, although far fewer than you would have traditionally because of the the printing merging parts together. But for our next rocket with Terran R, um, we're we're starting to look at more algorithmically generated structures um, and, and just using the physics, much like nature does with, you know, evolving bird wing bone structures and butterfly wing structures and tree roots and branches like the reason things look that way in nature is because it's evolved over millions of years to say those structures are really optimized for taking the kind of you know aerodynamic loads or or, you know very mass to strength optimized structures and so there are ways to do that with 3d printed structures that you start to let the pressure, the force, the bending loads, the thrust all dictate what it looks like. And then 3D printers are really the only things that can manufacture those types of structures. And not only is it better because it weighs less, with 3D printing, you have this really amazing incentive alignment that hasn't existed in the industry, where the less it weighs, the faster it is to print, and then the cheaper it is. So each version of the rocket, even if our goal is to make it cheaper or faster or lighter weight, is all the exact same thing. We just need to have less material and more optimized structures. So just on that cost point, um, and then I want to get to Mars, figurative speaking, of course. I mean, I imagine everything's very expensive right now because this is all new and you're still figuring it out. But like, you know, when you look into the future and you look at just build costs for a rocket, and I know people are taking different approaches, whether it's. SpaceX or Rocket Lab or whomever, but is there a kind of a rough, you know, once we get to the promised land, once we really start pumping these things out and get really good at it and perfect this process, it will be X percent cheaper than traditional. Yeah. So with the the first rocket we're building and the, the payload class we're going after today versus rockets that are flying in the 1250 kilogram payload class. The cost even that we're demonstrating today with the first one is about a third of what other companies are currently charging. One third. Yeah, it's a third. So we're selling for $12 million a launch. And then the cost obviously is a little bit less than that um, initially, and it'll improve over time. But yeah, for that payload size, there really isn't a low cost commercial provider for smaller satellite launches today. Like you mentioned Rocket Lab and 
there's another company called Astra in the U.S. that have launched Orbit, but their payload size of those rockets is you know, almost 10 times smaller than the first one we're doing. But we're really focused as well on, on building this much larger reusable rocket since we've raised so much capital over the last 12 months. And we've got a new million square foot factory we're moving into down the street from us. So it's quite, quite big. And we're putting a bunch of next generation 3D printers in there and building this you know, 20,000 kilogram payload, fully reusable rocket, because we see a huge opportunity for you know, satellite launches and low Earth orbit and big constellations of satellites. Now that SpaceX is doing their own satellite constellation, it's clear there needs to be a second disruptive, quickly moving launch company because SpaceX is doing a lot of their own stuff. And there's still a huge economy of satellite operators that, you know, perhaps don't want to just rely on one provider that's also developing their own satellites. And so we see a big opportunity there. And that rocket is fully reasonable. So we believe we can get to single digit millions over the long run as both parts are fully reusable. Single digit millions of what? As far as the cost, like per flight. Oh, okay. I see. I see. If you just briefly talk about when you expect to do the first launch and will you have any paying customers stuff aboard? Because I know we've had um, Will Marshall on the uh, from Planet on this pod a few times. And, you know, he's always talking about like, you know, especially in the early days, they had a lot of stuff just blow up on a rocket and then you have to kind yeah. of <laughs> rebuild a whole new batch of satellites and try again. And obviously this is a, a first in many ways. Have you had anybody be like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll send my stuff up the orbit on your experimental rocket? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, we, we have had a lot of people that want to fly on the first one. We decided not to take a payload on the very first one just for that reason. I mean, of course, I'm it's one of those things where I'm very proud of the team's work and confident in first launch, but we have customers on launch too. So we have a NASA payload for the second launch, and then we've signed quite quite a few uh, for additional launches. And then for Terranar, which will launch in 2024, towards the end of 2024 is what we're gunning towards. Definitely an, an aggressive goal, but one, one I think we can physically do. We've already sold the first Terran R missions and, and have quite a few that we'll sell over the coming months as well. So really, by the time we even launch our first rocket as a company, we should have almost a dozen or maybe actually a little more than a dozen customer missions, even for Terran R, which is a yeah, much, much larger rocket. Right. Why Mars? Why is that the goal? Why are you interested in that? Yeah, so I, I guess it kind of goes back to maybe more personal stuff. And I, I, yeah, I, I guess talking more about that. So I was always really good at math and science and physics growing up. So I grew up in Texas, went to public school there and was always really, really good at math and science. But where in Texas? Uh, I'm from Plano. So if, if you've ever drank Dr. Pepper 7-Up, it says made in Plano, Texas. It, it, sounds, it sounds like a very rural town, I feel like, but it is a pretty big suburb north of Dallas. And um, But it was, a, it was kind of a it was like a very safe but boring place to grow up. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's one of those places where every single house looks exactly the same, you know, very kind of like all there really is to do is shop and go to a mall. Like there's not anything outdoors or, or anything like that. But that was actually, you know, kind of led, led to a few things. Like one was 
of course, focusing on school, but then also I got really into film and cinema and writing. So I actually wrote uh, drafts of two novels in high school, and I, I dropped out of AP Physics my senior year uh, of high school with you know what at the time was a perfect grade to join the school newspaper because I thought I wanted to be a writer. So I got really inspired by this idea of well, frankly, inspiration and, and wonder. And I'd watched movies like Donnie Darko and Fight Club, and it's very inspiring to go in the creative field. So when I went to USC, I thought I was going to graduate and be a screenwriter. Yeah, USC Film School, very famous, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wasn't officially like a film major. I was in an honors writing program, but, you know, I, I thought I was going to be a screenwriter. That's why I moved to L.A., But during orientation, I switched to aerospace engineering. So while I was choosing writing classes... During orientation? Yeah, I literally got up in the middle of choosing classes. And I think I just had this really heavy thought on my mind, which is I don't want to be alone in a room writing for money. Like like all the writers I knew were kind of crazy and had very strange personalities and weird hours. (laughs) And like like the it, it sort of, you know... Yeah, I don't know. It was scary for, for me. Yeah. And, and then I decided to do aerospace engineering. It started with an A. It was near the top of the majors list. I was always good at math and science. I truly did not know what I wanted to do in life. Uh, I was dating a girl at the time whose dad was an aerospace engineer. So maybe that influenced me a little. But it truly started with an A. I, I walked over to the aerospace school, which is all the way across campus, enrolled in aerospace engineering. And then my freshman year, I I did very well in the classes, but I almost dropped out and wanted to go back to business and cinema this time because I was taking a coding class uh, called MATLAB. Um, So MATLAB's an engineering coding language. And, you know, I, again, had the same vision of myself alone in a cubicle writing code, designing airplanes or, or like parts of airplanes. And, you know, I just thought that was going to be very boring, but they wouldn't let me switch to this program. And so I had another friend who just offhand said, hey, there's this club at USC called USC Rocket Lab. And, you know, we're trying to be the first student group in the world to launch a rocket to space. I was not a space nerd growing up. Like I didn't, honestly, I thought the space shuttle was boring. Like I didn't get it. You know, I remember in elementary school, like talking to astronauts in the ISS and a school program at like an IMAX theater and all this kind of stuff. And it just never inspired me. It didn't stick with me. It felt really slow and kind of boring. But then I joined the student group at USC Rocket Lab and uh, fast forward, you know, one, one winter we went out to the desert and there was no professor involvement at all. So it was just students who designed and built their own rockets. So we made our own rocket propellant we made carbon fiber linerless rocket cases. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah. No one got hurt. It was very safe. It was very, there was safety oversight. That, that part. Of it right. Was, but, <laughs> yeah. But it was fun. And, and I just remember seeing my first ever rocket engine test in person. And that's what hooked me. And we stood a few hundred feet away. You know, you do the 10 second countdown, the engine lights and, I will say for anyone that hasn't seen a rocket engine test in real life or a rocket flight video doesn't even come close to capturing it. I mean, it looks like you're staring at a star, like the heart of a star. It is so bright. It is so loud at 
all frequencies, you know, upper, mid, lower, sub bass, just like the whole thing is a completely visceral and emotional experience. And I think that 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 hooked me because that's why I liked film and, and art. It was the visceral emotional experience. And then kind of fast forward at USC, I ended up ironically being the person that wrote all the MATLAB code that designed all, all the rockets and uh, rocket engines and, and such. And so um, the thing that made me almost drop out, of course, is then what I ended up kind of cutting my teeth on and starting to build a career on. Uh, and then we did several dozen rocket flights during college. Uh, so this is what really got me hooked on rockets. But And did you, they actually make it into orbit? They make it into space? So we did a whole bunch that were like zero to Mach, you know, zero to Mach four and like seven seconds and pulling 50 Gs, like crazy, crazy, crazy uh, rockets. They're more like missiles than rockets, really. But then we did, uh, I, I did grad school at USC as well in, in aerospace engineering and propulsion. And right before graduating, we did do our first space attempts. So the first one didn't make it, it blew up kind of quickly on on launch. We ended up having a, a kind of t- technically, but at a, grain like sheer failure so basically the rocket propellant was accelerating so fast that it ripped itself in half um, and that that's what caused the failure but there was finally a few years ago a successful attempt where it was the first student group that launched a rocket into space uh, at USC. in the year of the tiger the lion and the unicorn are here to inform three months for one pound a 98 percent reduction that will give you access to an unrivaled wealth of knowledge and breadth of opinions at an unbeatable price. Subscribe now at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So not getting to space didn't put you off, obviously. 
No, no. I mean, our, our, our <laughs> motto is space or nothing. And it did kind of capture this ethos of really going for it and, you know, trying to be ambitious. And I think it's a good mix of being humble, but having a chip on your shoulder. And you have to be a little crazy to say you're going to launch rockets and be in this industry because it is so challenging and so technically complex. But yeah, I think why why Mars, I guess, jumping to that, because I did start thinking about it a lot in college. And for me, it was much more about expanding the possibilities for human experience. Like, I, I think just having a million people living on another planet, and if we were having this conversation right now, Earth and what it means to be a human being would be radically different. Like, I think it's very existential for me. Um, it's it's very much what emotions we feel, the complexity of society, politics, art, religion, love, like just the stories that would be creative if humanity were a multiplanetary species are quite quite rich and vast. And honestly, I just think we've lived on Earth for millennia and you know generations of living and dying and living and dying and improving, but to me it's like what is it all about like there has to be a vision of humanity and and where we're going and and i think we do live in a time where this is possible like certainly putting a million people on mars in our lifetime is absolutely a real possibility um, and we could be one of the companies leading that adventure um, together with spacex and you know I'm a big fan of what they're doing i think we need, need them and i think we need starship to work i'm a big big believer in it but once the rockets land I've seen you know many videos where the rockets land on Mars and then right when the astronauts walk out, they fade to black. Uh, and so it was kind of a wake-up call to me that we need to inspire dozens to hundreds of companies to go after this mission if it's really going to happen. And it's not a guarantee or certainty that more companies would be founded to go after such an ambitious goal. Uh, and in fact, all of the other space companies you've mentioned not a single one of them uh, other than us and SpaceX have said Mars is even part of our vision or mission in the long term. And so, you know, much less the, the core focus and really what we're driving towards. And so that's just a little depressing. And I think, you know, SpaceX is almost two decades old now. And if there's only two of us, you know, we need to catalyze a lot more interest and excitement. Right. So you're working at Blue Origin you're helping them develop. How did you finally get to the point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to leave this job at, you know, a very cool company, one of the few who are trying to do, you know, take these big swings and go out on my own and try to do something that no one else has done. It's not even clear it's possible and try to raise money and do all of that. Like what got you there? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, I don't even think I've maybe told the the full story or real story before. So excited to tell it. Yeah, so I was 25 um, at Blue Origin when I founded Relativity. And then my co-founder, Jordan, um, who we, we both were in the USC Rocket Lab together. Uh, mm. So I knew him from USC. He had gone over to SpaceX and was working on the Dragon capsule. And he... Um, was 23 or 22, I think. So we're, we're pretty young. But while at Blue Origin, so I founded the Metal 3D printing division that definitely gave me a view into you know, like cost modeling and coming up with, you know, hey, how is this going to improve the company? So I realized I had a bit of an entrepreneurial bent because it was fun doing that. It's not really related to what we're doing at Relativity. We're definitely taking it, you know, several orders of magnitude further for how much we're printing of our rocket. 
But then I dated to my now wife is an artist um, who we met at USC. We were both giving TEDx talks. So we were together and I we started writing a business plan for a science art gallery. We were going to found in Seattle called Relativity Gallery. And so the whole idea of that was art plus science equals wonder. And we had this Venn diagram logo of, you know, kind of wonder in the middle. And it was going to feature artists that were doing, uh, you know, work in science and kind of blending the two together. But basically, my dad stopped us from signing a lease at the final hour (laughs) on this gallery space. And, you know, I was going to take my $80,000 kind of Blue Origin engineer salary and dump like half of it into this gallery and kind of live on ramen. Like it it was going to be a definite adventure to do it. Why'd your dad, was this like a typical parent, like this is just a bad idea, you're going to be living like a pauper or was it deeper than that? No, I I think, uh, so so my dad, well, he's an entrepreneur. So basically he owns a company that's like, it's been anything from literally himself to kind of up to six people and then back down to himself and then up to six. So, so kind of growing up, I did have a good model of like, he's an, an entrepreneur and almost failed like hundred. I mean, I honestly can't tell you how many times I've talked to him where he said, you know, I think I'm going to have to shut the company down. We're failing. Like it was just always on the ragged edge of making it. What does this company do? Uh, so it's called Camden Design Group. They do like kidney dialysis architecture. So it's very, very specific. Um, but he's an architect and uh, they just do like design of buildings essentially. And, you know, again, usually it's just him. So it's kind of a very, very small business. But yeah, he never failed. And I saw that. So that was definitely a good model. And, you know, I'd recognize kind of lucky growing up from that perspective and having that model. But he was very supportive. uh, And he's supportive of taking risk. He just, I don't know, he kind of sat, sat us down and maybe did the, hey, have you really thought about this kind of final gate? And, you know, then I was like, oh, well, now that you say it, I don't know, like, I guess it does feel a little crazy. And, risky, but I, I couldn't scratch that entrepreneurial itch and it just wouldn't go away. So I just thought, well, man, like, why don't I just 3D print a whole rocket? Like, isn't that the inevitable future? Like someone's going to have to do it eventually. Cause I, I was pretty sure that in the future, no one was ever going to say, I want a rocket with, you know, more parts or more hands-on labor, more fixed cooling or more complicated supply chain you know, and I, I kind of learned that that way of thinking from Jeff, which is also great of just what's not going to change and what's durable. And so from there, it just, yeah, I, I mean, I cold emailed Mark Cuban is the very first email I sent after leaving. As you do. How'd you get his email? I guessed. So we guessed 20 different combinations of mcuban, mark.cuban at gmail.com and yahoo.com. So I just put in the the two line, 20 different versions. There's some kind of mcuban at Gmail who's probably got a inbox yeah. <laughs> full of people like you who are like, hey, I've got a good idea. Give me some money. <laughs> I can save listeners the trouble. That actually is his email. <laughs> it's mcuban <laughs> at gmail.com. So there you go. Um, yeah, so, so he responded in five minutes. Of course, I got you know a bunch of bounce backs and he, he replied in five minutes. And the subject line was, space is sexy. We're 3D printing a whole rocket. 
we were raising our seed rounds. Like, I, I mean, this is literally the first email I sent from my relativity email address. Like, I didn't know any investors. I hadn't even tried to talk to investors. I mean, I was scraping my contacts from way back in USC and anyone even tangentially related to startups. And, you know, he replied back and kind of asked a few questions, but then we were asking for $100,000. So, sorry, just pause there for a sec. So when he replied back, were you like, holy shit? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that was, there, there's a large number of pinch me moments at this point, but that's definitely one of the craziest. I was like, is this real? Like, this is pretty nuts. But, you know, I've gone on to find, by the way, you can you can email or message almost anyone in the world and, you know, you won't get a 100% reply back, but you'll actually get a pretty shocking amount of interest, especially if it's a, you know, warm intro. Like a lot of people want to just help. But yeah, he, he's pretty crazy with email and he, he's now invested in every funding round we've done since. But yeah, he, he ended up doing, you know, we said we were raising 500k. Uh, we wanted a hundred thousand dollars, and he said, "Well, you know, I'll just do the entire thing. Like, I'll do all 500k." So it was basically a you know like couple minute interaction. So literally, your first email got you 500k for this idea. That's right. Yeah, and, and I appreciate in hindsight how not normal that is because then the same week we got into y combinator and incorporated so it was a very crazy first week and so then we did yc and it was just me and my co-founder jordan noon at that point and of course in yc we had three months and really sam altman who led yc at the time was pretty instrumental like he's focused a lot on deep tech and really hard science companies and he's got a personal passion for he's leading open ai now but he he believed in us and then we had three months to show a prototype i mean we had literally just started the company we had absolutely nothing we had some excel models and you know we had just walked out of our jobs we we couldn't really have done much you know so we we more or less had to make a prototype for what was going to be the world's largest metal 3d printer we had to show people that works and then we had to design you know some of the rocket and just show traction or get customers um so i just remember during yc we were flying around we had like i mean even getting equipment like lead time for robots and stuff in three months was basically impossible so we had to beg borrow you know lease and rent out other random people's robots and uh laser welders and and you know aluminum wire feed systems and and all that kind of stuff and so we had four different people going at once including we did order our own robot from kuka um to do at our yc warehouse and i remember within the first two weeks like two of the options totally failed you know basically we're using these laser really high power multi-thousand watt laser welders and the laser with aluminum it's especially reflective so that it bounced back off the aluminum and it went back up the the laser fiber and totally burned out the laser fiber and that's a 12-week lead time replacement part so basically within two weeks you know two of our four shots on goal completely failed but then we had one group that we were working with and flying to their facility uh, in ohio um, named ewi that had had equipment and and uh, people that ended we ended up hiring onto the relativity team later, uh, but that we you know we kind of learned from those failures, uh, came up with a new way to do the printing with aluminum so that it wouldn't burn up the fiber, 
and then that ended up working. And, and uh, we literally built a prototype dome, uh, rocket engine, and nozzle for at the time a rocket was the rocket lab size, so 150 kilogram payload. It's it's since gotten nearly 10 times larger, but at the time that's the product we were building. And uh, I remember it completed literally a day before demo day. And so they shipped it overnight. <laughs> it showed up the morning of demo day. How big was this? Uh, it was about four and a half foot diameter and like seven feet tall. So did you just send that like FedEx overnight? <laughs> yeah, it's like a crate basically. Yeah, but at the time, this was the largest uh, aluminum 3D printed object in the world. So, so it was quite impressive just to show it was even possible and we could do it. Of course, while you know Jordan and I were both focused on the printing, I was also going around to different customers, just trying to get LOIs and some early traction. And then, yeah, it all came together to demo day, and the the dome shows up. And then I remember we say, "Oh crap! Like, we need to file our patents before we do a demo day presentation in front of a giant audience of people because this is public disclosure." And so we had had the draft we were working on because, of course, this kind of printing tech, there's a lot of novel things we're doing to, to make it work. And I just remember then Jordan is down in the lobby while I'm prepping to give the demo day talk, like writing the final words and filing our provisional patent, which then we've built a lot of the IP off of since. Um, and, and so it's just, yeah, it was crazy. And so after demo day, did you raise more money? We, we did. So, so that was another just you know, there's there's always these long string of noob things that you just kind of are too dumb to know any better. Uh, so we, we tried to raise a Series A uh, straight out of YC. So it was still just me and my co-founder. We hadn't hired a single employee. And, you know, this is our first company experience, but we didn't, we knew we had to swing for the fences and, and kind of get a lot of capital. So we were trying to raise $10 million Series A and this, I know that sounds paltry by today's standards. I mean, things have ch- changed dramatically over the last two years. But yeah, it's quite large at the time. And I think in hindsight, like no way would we have done that if we knew what it took. I mean, it was, you know, 90 meetings and six weeks and right after demo day and you get one term sheet. And uh, it was from a firm called Social Capital. This guy, Arjun Sethi, who went on to found Tribe uh, since so he left Social Capital, but uh, yeah, they were a very blue chip firm at the mm-hmm. time and we were really excited and uh, yeah, we, we took the money and then started hiring our first employees. But yeah, for sure, it's a it's no question when you tell people you're 3D printing rockets with the goal of one day 3D printing on Mars, like there was a bit of a grind in the early in the early fundraising. <laughs> so you went, so just to recap, so you send one email, get 500 grand from Mark Cuban, and then you do 90 meetings to get one term sheet for your Series A. Yeah, 90 meetings for one term sheet Series A. And it goes on, right? 140 meetings for Series B, one term sheet. I think Series C was maybe 60 meetings. It was less, it, it got less. And then- yeah. You know, the, the follow-on ones, which have been most of the money, like $1.2 billion, was, um, I don't know, over and done in three weeks each, like really fast. And has Bezos and or Amazon or, or and or the Earth Fund, have they invested? Um, not directly, no. But I've, sta- I've stayed in touch with Jeff. And yeah, it's been fun to show off some of the things we're doing. And yeah, more, more just personal friends, frankly, than anything business related. Right. And just on that issue around manufacturing on Mars, are there any issues gravity-wise or atmosphere-wise that would make it harder to 
print things on the red planet? Yeah, so definitely gravity is different. That's the hardest thing to simulate. But but the nice thing about our approach is, so everything on Mars can be simulated and you can print and trial it on Earth. So atmospheric composition, which is more CO2 heavy, uh, you can do that in a vacuum chamber. The temperature swings, you can do in an environmental chamber. Um, even the alloy composition, you know, we've Th- thought about what what that looks like on Mars, and and early on we would send the material there, but long term, of course, you want to build from from materials that you mine on Mars. But the the hardest thing is gravity. But luckily, the way our control algorithms are being developed is we will be able to simulate in like simulation software, physics simulation software, different levels of gravity and see how that affects the print parameters. And so we can build in some intelligence into the system that will, you know, essentially predict with a lower gravity what it looks like. Like basically it just becomes a more uh, surface tension dominated problem, you know, for the physics versus gravity plus surface tension. But like really the most extreme is in zero gravity. There, of course, there's no gravity, so it's all surface tension dominated. But that's generally fairly predictable. Um, but I do think the intelligence and kind of machine learning or, or ability to adapt to nonlinear print parameters that are a little stochastic and unpredictable, that having more intelligent printing will be a big part of what you need. And then also just a very compact factory that can build a wide range of products with little human labor because there's not going to be very many people on mars initially and they have to be really productive to build structures and i think the first things we'll do i mean it'll be things like spare parts for missions that you you can't really ship something else there so you need spare parts Uh, but then also things like water and food storage vessels you know i think transportation systems like little rovers and things like that, I think will be more early things. But yeah, really, it does need to grow to be a full industrial base because I don't think we're going to be launching huge numbers of casting equipment and uh, lathes and mills and other other pieces. So is the idea then, so first phase is getting stuff into space and or to the moon and or to the Mars. Second phase is actually setting up shop effectively on mars to actually help build civilization because you can't just like go to home depot on mars to buy stuff and build stuff and etc yep yep exactly so i mean it's a you know i think i'm more realistic in that it's going to be a longer time horizon but you know the the thing we're finding and really one of the most exciting things for me is that all of those North Star parameters of a small compact factory that can build a wide range of products on few systems and, and small capex with not a lot of human labor and quick iteration and, and learning rate all describe a very killer business on Earth when it comes to building aerospace products. So, you know, I think we're definitely ambitious in, in our vision and long term mission, but near term, there's a huge opportunity because. When you look at an aerospace factory from 60 years ago, a modern one today doesn't look much different. It's still these giant, yeah, fixed tooling-based products um, with hundreds of thousands to millions of individual parts all assembled by hand and not a lot of automation and software. And I do really believe that, you know, software is going to disrupt almost every industry, and it already is. It hasn't really touched aerospace yet. 
because no one's built the toolkit underpinning it to create a product in a different way. And so that's really what Relativity is doing. And then we're the first end product 3D printing company in the world that's not just selling 3D printers, but we're building the entire product on top of it. I think, you know, going back to the electric vehicle analogy from earlier, I think that we're definitely taking a page out of that playbook because what we realized is 3D printing hasn't gotten as large as it can, partially because it's a very high adoption friction from what is normally defined as the customer interface. Like normally a company is building a 3D printer and trying to sell it to somebody like a Boeing or Honeywell or Rolls-Royce or, or Relativity, like we'd be a customer as well. But the problem is, is you're not just selling a machine and saying, hey, go print some parts. What you're really selling is an entirely new philosophy that says you need to design all of your parts differently. You need to design your supply chain differently, your factory differently. You even need to hire some different people that have skill sets and know how to design and develop for 3D printing. Your quality control is different. Your whole development process and the way you're company is built is different. That's what you're selling. So that is a really high adoption friction ask for companies that have billions of dollars of sunk cost and these really legacy approaches to switch. Um, I I think another example where this has happened is on-premise computing versus cloud. Like now you don't need a person to manage a server and like the physical hardware on premise, you need people that know how to interface with a cloud infrastructure. And it's just a sea change in the business model. And so I think for us, not selling the the tech itself, but just building better end use products and really owning that entire application layer is really the key. Like if I had to say one thing that we're doing uniquely different, that is the the game changer, it's it's that. Well, it's interesting. When I was back in the UK, for many years, I covered aerospace, amongst other things. So I've been to the big Boeing and Airbus factories. So when you're talking about what those processes look like, it's like a giant kind of workshop where you have lots of people actually just like going screw by screw, fastener by fastener, putting miles and miles and miles of wires into each plane, et cetera. It's very, very because I covered both the A380 launch and the Dreamliner launch or the run up to the Dreamliner launch. And it was just, they were like, we're running out of screws. Yeah. Where we you know, like, the, yeah. and we have a hundred different suppliers all around the world. And we're, it's like, we're trying to conduct the symphony to make sure everything kind of comes together in the right way and around time. And it was just, it's, you know, obviously the challenges there were evident. So it's an interesting kind of philosophy shift, as you say. And that's, that's an industrial base those industrial bases, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars over decades that have been built up. So I can understand why you've been able to raise the amount of money you have, obviously, because what you're doing is also very hard and capital intensive. But I'm just wondering, and all those hundreds of meetings you had with investors, do you start out with Mars and be like, yeah, we're going to build industrial base on (laughs) Mars? Or do you say, look, this is what we're doing over here on Earth and this is the disruptive force we're trying to impose here. And I'm wondering if you have any, if you have any like interactions with any investors who are just like looked at you like you know, <laughs> you know, you had your hair on fire or something. Yes, early on for sure. Um, like I've always believed in authenticity, to be honest. So I mean, yeah, every single investor that's ever invested in us, I've definitely talked about Mars and told them this is what I really want to do. I think as it's come across, it's probably been more, wow, like this company 
is swinging big and, and wants mm. to do big things. Cause I think it's really my personal motivation of why, like, why should we be a hundred billion dollar plus company, which I certainly think in the industry we're in, we can build. And it's that motivation. Like we need to get to scale in order to, to make a dent in making that happen. Um, but yeah, certain, certainly I think we're rewriting a, a new tech stack for all of aerospace that's large. Rocket launch, you know, we didn't talk so much about the details there, but that's a, a huge market over the next decade. Like we actually have seen there are far more satellites that need to be launched than there are launch vehicles. Even when you add up every launch vehicle company developing worldwide and taking them at face value, uh, which doesn't always happen in this industry, but taking them at face value about how many launches they're going to do per year, it's something like an aggregate two to one supply and demand imbalance over the next decade because so many people want to launch so many satellites. And so obviously not all of them will be successful and, and the world won't play out where there's a supply and demand imbalance forever. But I do think there's a huge opportunity. So starting there, plus our team's experience, we basically hired uh, most of the executive team that built the first wave of private space companies. So the person that led the entire Dragon Capsule program for eight years, the person that led all of production and launch for SpaceX, um, the you know person that led all of government sales and lobbying. So we have a pretty stacked team, which of course, gives investors a lot of confidence that we can execute and deliver. Um, and then we also, you know, we're only the fourth company to ever get a launch site at Cape Canaveral, Florida. Um, the others were SpaceX, Blue Origin, and United Launch Alliance. Um, we control about half of Stennis Space Center exclusively for the next 20 years in a, a pioneering public-private partnership we won there. We've done about 800 rocket engine tests to date, uh, including you know many full duration tests at this point. So yeah, we're just a few months away from launch. And I think the, the real traction and proof points, uh, we're the most pre-sold rocket company in history before actually launching a rocket. So as far as customer buy-in from you know people like Iridium and Telesat and the US government and NASA is quite high. So that's made fundraising easier as we've gotten progress. But yeah, de- definitely, you know, I think revisionist history is pretty s- strong in the startup space. And I'd be the first to tell you, like, there was a lot of learning, a lot of failing and a lot of getting rejected, you know, partially people thinking it was crazy or thinking 3D printing would never be fast enough or cheap enough. And like there was a little bit of suspension of belief there. I mean, we were making progress in printing and testing real hardware the whole time. But um, I am proud because our fourth generation printers, which we're about to release into the wild and, and do production on, is the biggest jet change in the printing tech we've had to date. And they print about 10 times faster than the ones we have operating now. So we'll go from you know building our first rocket fuselage in five months down to about 15 days with this version. And then, you know, of course, we are still very, very early and making printing tech as good as I believe it can get. And so, you know, as far as more feature complexity and building things that can't be built using traditional manufacturing at all and very optimized kind of uh, algorithmically generated structures. And I think one day as well, like AI and kind of more intelligent design will also need a very data controlled and software controlled factory to build those types of products. And that that's really where I see 3D printing going. 
Um, so it's not just to me a manufacturing technology. It is a new paradigm in the interface between product development, manufacturing, and software. So yeah, I, I fully appreciate it's ambitious, and there's definitely a chance you know we we still could fail. Like uh, we've got a lot to prove, and I think you got to be heads down and just execute and get results. Yeah. And, you know, the storytelling only goes so far. Um, and so we're really, you know, I've been proud of the velocity of execution as well. I think that's a, yeah, that, that's really ultimately what investors end up looking at at this phase in the game. And just before you go, when is the launch? Or is there a date set yet? Or is it kind of a rough window? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a, a few months from now. So yeah, no no specific publicly stated date. But yeah, we're, we're pretty dang close. I mean, we're doing all the final. At, and it'll be at Cape Canaveral. At Cape Canaveral. Yep, at Cape Canaveral. We're going to live stream it so p- people can see it. It's going to be good fun. Yeah, the mission name is uh, GLHF or Good Luck, Have Fun. Uh, which is a sl- slang from gamer gamer world, and all, all of our stuff's named after StarCraft. So our rockets named Terran One, and our three D printers named Stargate. And you know, of course, you gotta build the Stargate to warp in spaceships with Protoss. So you know, there's <laughs> always a little bit of nerd culture in there too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you luck, and I'll we'll definitely uh, be watching the uh, the live stream when it happens. But um, yeah, fascinating story, and um, yeah, for everybody out there, you know cold emails do pay clearly (laughs) yeah no it's true absolutely true and that is all the time we have i want to thank tim for taking the time i want to thank you all for listening and for the ratings and for the reviews and for telling your friends about the pod as always hugely appreciated i hope you enjoyed this week i hope you're staying healthy i hope if you've got covid it's not affecting you too bad i know a lot of people are still really suffering from it but hopefully that is Um, If you just look at the numbers in terms of infections and stuff, it seems to be going up pretty dramatically. So hopefully that continues. Anyhow, I will be writing about the madness in the markets this week. So do check that out in the Sunday Times. And that is it for me this week. If you want to find me, I am on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. Email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend. Stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy. And we'll talk to you next week. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.